Welcome back to Clinician's Brief, the podcast, the conversations behind the content. I'm your host, Dr. Alyssa Watson. And in today's episode, we're discussing a variety of interesting perineoplastic syndromes with Dr. Stacy Fox Alvarez, a clinical assistant professor in oncology at the University of Florida. Her article, entitled Top 5 Perineoplastic Syndromes, appeared in the November-December 2021 edition of Clinician's Brief. It covered hypercalcemia of malignancy, perineoplastic hypoglycemia, hypertrophic osteopathy, myasthenia gravis, and feminization syndrome. So a few of these I've seen multiple times in my 19 years of practice, and some I'm not sure I've ever seen, but it's totally possible that I did, and I just didn't recognize them for what they were. So Dr. Fox Alvarez, I'm really excited to be having this conversation with you today. Well, that's great. I'm excited to be here. Before we dive in, could you just tell the audience a little bit about your background? Um, sure. So I am a I'm an oncologist at the University of Florida. I started here in 2020 as a faculty member, but before that, I did my residency here in oncology. Also, prior to that, I did a medical oncology specialty internship at the University of Florida and also a um, emergency and critical care internship at the University of Florida. I worked emergency just out in the world uh, for a year before that. And I did a rotating internship at a private practice in Maitland, Florida, in the Orlando area. So yeah, that's how I got to where I am now. All right. So uh, we are going to go through, you know, each of these syndromes that you detailed. But before we do that, I'd like, just could you define what exactly a perineoplastic syndrome is? I'd be happy to. So a perineoplastic syndrome is a set of symptoms or clinical abnormalities that are not directly caused by a tumor, like its physical size or its presence, but they're generally caused by something that the tumor is producing, either hormones or other biologically active compounds that can cause an effect far from the tumor. Um, It could also potentially cause systemic symptoms. And I'm a person that kind of likes categories. Are there generally accepted categories or classification systems for these types of syndromes? I don't think that there's a formal classification scheme. When we read about these, they oftentimes are divided into the body systems that they affect. So there are some that will be more endocrinologic, GI, hematologic, neurologic, cutaneous, et cetera, but there's not necessarily a formal scheme that we use to classify them. That's really helpful. Are there certain types of neoplasia that are most often associated with perineoplastic syndromes, or does that really depend on the specific perineoplastic syndrome that we're looking at? I think for the most part, it depends on the specific perineoplastic syndrome, but there are definitely some repeat offenders. So lymphoma, I would say, is probably one that I see more commonly cause perineoplastic syndromes because it can cause more than one. And it's also among tumors relatively common. Also, carcinomas are one that you can find on the list for all of these things. So, you know, whenever there's a perineoplastic syndrome and then you look up like, what are the potential causes for this? There are a lot of carcinomas that appear sort of all over these lists. Yeah. And as you said, lymphoma is the one that kind of jumps to my mind every time. One thing that I've always kind of wondered are are the neoplasms that cause these syndromes, are they always malignant or can you have benign neoplasms that also cause perineoplastic syndromes? We can definitely see benign tumors cause perineoplastic syndromes. And I first want to 
take a second to discuss how I define malignant and benign because those are words that are used all the time, but not necessarily knowing what they mean. So I define malignant as having the potential to be locally invasive for regional tissues or to have the potential to metastasize or spread somewhere else in the body. I define benign as unlikely to invade regional tissues or unlikely to spread, but benign tumors can still cause a problem. So they can grow large enough to cause clinical signs, even if they're not locally invasive, just depending on where they are. And they can still secrete hormones or other biologically active proteins or compounds that can cause systemic effects. I will give an example. So a pituitary adenoma in a cat is a benign tumor. It's not going to invade the nearby tissues, but it can still grow large enough to potentially cause neurologic signs. And it can secrete growth hormone, which is the cause of acromegaly. So although most of the tumors on these lists that we have are malignant, you can there are definitely very strong examples of benign tumors causing perineoplastic syndromes. Thank you for that, for taking the time, because I think that's something that we oftentimes forget. As you said, we use those words and we sometimes what one person, you know, thinks of as, as what they mean is a little different from how someone else is defining them. So that was really helpful as well. I think we all kind of easily understand that recognizing these syndromes helps clue us in that we need to be looking for cancer in our patients. But can you speak to any other reasons why we should be familiar with the clinical signs associated with these syndromes? I think that the really interesting thing about perineoplastic syndromes is that they are often causing symptoms very far from the tumor itself. And unless you've sort of seen it before or are familiar with that perineoplastic syndrome, you lack the ability to have that pattern recognition, which can really help to focus in and and reach a diagnosis a lot faster. So as an example, I recently had a patient that came in for, it was complicated, but um, it had chronic dermatologic issues. And it had, as a part of that, sort of this symmetric truncal alopecia, it had really prominent mammary tissue, but it was really hard to distinguish it from like lichenification from just chronic dermatologic disease. So we talked with dermatology and their number one differential was a Sertoli cell tumor and hyperestrogenism leading to this dog's truncal alopecia. But it was easy to miss because the dog had also had chronic derm disease and it sort of blended together. But in this dog, we could have kept chasing the skin disease for a long time and missed the fact that the dog actually had a testicular tumor that was contributing, if not causing, a lot of the dog's symptoms. And by neutering it, hopefully the dog will be fixed and a lot of this will resolve. So it's really easy to sort of chase down something without taking a step back and saying, hold on, it seems like all of these things may actually be connected to something going on in an entirely different location. So just understanding and recognizing these patterns can help you get to it diagnosis for the underlying problem a lot faster. So let's go ahead and start to talk about, you know, these different syndromes that you detailed in the article. Hypercalcemia malignancy was the first on the list. This is definitely the one that I see most often in practice. What are the most common clinical signs that we see associated with hypercalcemia? I'll take a step back here because I personally do not ever remember anything unless I understand the why or how behind it. So I'll tell you the answer to this question, at least in dogs, the most common symptom that we see is polyuria and polydipsia, which seems sort of out there. And every time I ask the students this, when I'm teaching them, they always get this wrong because it's not very obvious. 
But in dogs, this is by far the most common symptom that we see. And it's actually a primary polyuria. So calcium, excess calcium, actually acts locally at the kidney to block the action of ADH or vasopressin, which causes the secondary diabetes insipidus. So now this prevents the urine from being concentrated. It causes animals to lose excess water, and then they have to compensate by drinking a lot. So it's a primary polyuria with a secondary polydipsia. I always think that that fact is really neat, and that helps me remember it. So I hope it works for someone else out there too. The other signs that we can see associated with hypercalcemia are weakness or lethargy, loss of appetite, gastrointestinal upset. We can see that in dogs and cats, and the GI symptoms um, and lethargy are more common in cats. So that's probably the, you know, it, it's a sick cat. So it's a sick cat. <laughs> um, <laughs> these symptoms are common to a lot of different diseases. They're not very specific, but unfortunately, we don't tend to see the same um, PUPD symptom in cat to clue us into it. It's just more mm-hmm. of the nonspecific signs. Um, and in some cases, usually when the calcium gets really high, I've also seen patients develop muscle twitching or muscle fasciculations associated with hypercalcemia as well. Okay. And then uh, for cancers that cause hypercalcemia malignancy, you know, you had already spoken a little bit that lymphoma and carcinomas, those are two that I think of, you know, right off the bat, but are there others? There are others. There's there's a long list, uh, but lymphoma and um, anal sac adenocarcinoma mm-hmm. are going to be the most common ones that we see. Theoretically, any type of carcinoma can do it. In cats, we um, like squamous cell carcinoma has been reported. I've also seen that in dogs with squamous cell carcinoma of the sinus. So potentially any form of squamous cell carcinoma or any form of carcinoma anywhere else in the body. It's also been reported with thymoma and multiple myeloma, but the mechanism for myeloma is different than for the other tumors. So again, this is another thing that I don't remember unless I understand it. So I'm happy to go through the mechanism if you are interested to know more. Absolutely. I'd love that. Okay, great. I was hoping you'd say that. So (laughs) um, when, um, like one of the primary hormones that regulates calcium homeostasis in the body mm-hmm. is parathyroid hormone or parathormone or PTH, which is a lot easier to say. So when the ionized calcium, which is the biologically active form of calcium in the body, it has a very short half-life. So when this falls low, it's, it's very tightly regulated. We're going to see an increase in PTH. When PTH is increased, it tells the body to save calcium or release calcium from several different locations. So probably the first is the gastrointestinal tract. It tells the body to absorb calcium from the GI tract. So it's going to increase our calcium absorption. It talks to the kidneys and it tells the kidneys to stop getting rid of calcium in the urine. So it's going to conserve calcium and reduce calcium loss. And then it goes to the calcium storage system in the body, which is the bone. So bone acts as the bank for calcium in the body. And it's it actually leads to the activation of our osteoclasts, which are going to chew on the bone and release calcium into the bloodstream. So that's sort of the calcium homeostasis process in the body. When we have tumors cause hypercalcemia malignancy, the most common mechanism is through PTHRP or PTH-related protein. I did not learn this until probably two years ago, but I find it really interesting. So PTHRP is actually something that is a fetal hormone. So this controls calcium homeostasis in utero in the developing fetus. So you should not have PTHRP detectable in your body ever unless you're a fetus or potentially if you're incubating a fetus, like that might Mm -hmm. also be okay. 
but outside of that setting, it's not okay. PTHRP doesn't act quite as strongly as PTH, but it has a lot of very similar effects. And so it's going to cause hypercalcemia through the same mechanism that it would if you had too much PTH. Most tumors are going to secrete PTH or some PTH-like compound, which will result in hypercalcemia. Myeloma is different. So myeloma actually diffusely involves infiltration of the bone marrow and mm-hmm. release of calcium from the bone through direct action of like the tumor numbing on the bone and releasing calcium that way. So it's a little bit different in that it is diffuse involvement of bone. A lot of the students also ask like, why doesn't osteosarcoma cause hypercalcemia? But osteosarcoma is very focal. So usually it's just one spot. Even with metastasis, it's like one or two or three spots. But myeloma is relatively diffuse. And so it's going to have a lot stronger impact on being able to raise that calcium by destruction of bone. That makes total sense. So as a, you know, as a practicing clinician, I always, when I get back that chemistry panel with an elevated total calcium, I'm always kind of like, okay, where is the best next step and how can I help, you know, because certainly I want to be thorough in my workup, but also cognizant of, you know, owner's financial concerns and how to chase this down. So what should the next step be when you get just a, an elevated total calcium on a chemistry panel? I agree that this is a pain in the tuchus because <laughs> it's like, great, what do I do? Not having a lot access to ionized calcium. You know, we are mm-hmm. very lucky that we have that as part of our blood gas machine. And so, you know, I can run that and it costs the client $15, which is totally reasonable. But in a, you know, most of our practices don't, they don't have access to that. And so it's a lot harder to figure that out. Um, I think that if the elevation is mild, I probably would just recheck it in a period of time. So if it's like 0.1 or 0.2 outside of the reference range, I might check it again in a few weeks or even a few months. If it's moderately elevated, I might check it again in within a week or so just to see if it's repeatable. If it's severely elevated and you think it's real, so one of the things you can always do is just recheck it, you know, right then to make sure mm-hmm. that it didn't get mixed up or contaminated or whatever. But if it's real and it's severely elevated, then at that point, I would just move forward with the next step, which is submitting a panel to assess where that could be coming from, which would include ionized calcium, um, PTH. Um, PTHRP, and then depending on the panel that you submit, potentially vitamin D, if you think that there's a chance that your patient could have vitamin D toxicosis leading to hypercalcemia, then there are some panels that include that as well. And then when I was in school, we had this formula for corrected calcium, but I'm not even sure that's a thing anymore. I think I was taught that too, um, <laughs> but when I was doing my homework for this, um, I was looking at Ettinger and they they said that yeah. the, using the formula is not recommended anymore. Yeah, I, I didn't think it was. I think I'm dating myself. <laughs> so when I was, you know, doing my homework to talk with you today too, I found this canine ionized calcium calculator that's available, you know, for free with the University of Illinois. Had you ever heard of that or seen it? I hadn't heard about it until you brought it up. Um, and I looked into it too. So mm-hmm. um, I'm not sure how useful it is. I okay. read the paper that's associated with it. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit hard because I think that they, you know, base that on 
their lab within the University of Illinois. And I don't, you know, whenever something's done within one lab, you always wonder, is it going to be repeatable if we open it up to kind of use all labs? And I don't know if that's the case. But in reading through the paper associated with that formula, it seems that the, like the formula is about as sensitive as total calcium at picking up elevations in ionized calcium. So that formula and total calcium detect about 64% of high ionized calcium. However, the, the formula is a little bit more specific for ionized hypercalcemia than total calcium is. So if you have a patient that has high total calcium or where you're just wanting to check this formula, if you get an ionized calcium prediction using this formula that's high, it was correct in about 95% of cases. So, you know, if your calculation comes back as predicted ionized calcium is high, you can probably believe it. But if it comes back as low, you know, there's some room for doubt. And I actually double checked this week. Um, I used one of our patients' data that I had blood work on that I had an ionized calcium on. And it was actually in a dog that at that date that I used it against, the total calcium was normal, but the ionized calcium was high, which does happen sometimes. Mm-hmm. And the formula did not predict that the dog would have a high ionized calcium, but in fact, you know, I had a high reading. So I think that just sort of goes into that. If it's predicted to be high, you can probably believe it, but if not, there's still some room for doubt. Yeah. I just thought it was really interesting. Thank you so much for <laughs> giving your opinion on it. And I, I kind of played around with it as well. And I think it's something in the future, I'll probably out of curiosity, you know, if I do have to run an ionized calcium or a, or a panel, you know, I might see if the, the results agree moving forward, just because I thought it was really interesting. And I think that that probably makes a lot of sense. So the annoying thing about sending out the hypercalcemia panel is mm-hmm. that it's really not going to be useful unless the ionized calcium is elevated. Right. So if you're not this panel and, it, and your ionized calcium is within the reference range, then it doesn't really matter what the other values are and you've wasted that money. If you've got a total calcium of 15 or 16 or something, I'd still send out the panel. But if it's a little bit high or moderately elevated, then I think it would be reasonable to do this formula. And if it comes back high, you can feel pretty good about you know, okay, then it's probably going to be high in the reference range. And then this is going to be a diagnostic value. If that formula does not predict that it's going to be high, you know, I don't know if that would change what I would do. (laughs) I might still submit the panel anyway, but it might provide you additional information that I feel like it could be helpful in that scenario. Yep. And probably good to look at moving forward. So back to just hypercalcemia malignancy, since we took a little detour there, beyond treatment of the primary tumor, I know there are treatments available to address the hypercalcemia. Could you talk a little bit about those? Yeah. So as you mentioned, for hypercalcemia malignancy, most of the time if we're getting the primary tumor under control, we're going to see the calcium fall back into normal range. But there's certainly some scenarios where this isn't possible or we might have caught them prior to treatment and need to get the patient into a more stable position so that we can then move forward with chemotherapy or surgery or whatever we want to do. So part of the management for me depends on how high the calcium is and how sick the patient is. If the patient is well and the calcium is only mildly elevated, then we might not need to do anything before moving forward with treatment. If the calcium is really high and the patient is sick, then it's a very different story. So in an acute 
setting like that where you have a sick patient with a really high calcium, typically fluids is going to be your best bet. Most of these patients are, so if you think about it, they've had their ADH inhibited. So they're going to be really dry. They've lost a lot of fluid. They're not able to keep up with an intake because they feel nauseous because their calcium is so high. So they might also have gastrointestinal symptoms on top of not being able to concentrate their urine. So they're behind. So probably the most important thing is just rehydrating them. It is like, it's preferred to use 0.9% sodium chloride if you have that available to you because sodium promotes calcium excretion through the kidneys. So by increasing the sodium, we're trying to promote the excretion of calcium. Um, But if you don't have that available, then just choose fluids because hydration at this point is the most important. Some people use furosemide. So, and that's something that if you're reading how to treat these patients, you might come across it because it also promotes calcium excretion. It's something that I've done before. I don't personally see that it makes a huge difference. And it's something that I would only use in a patient that I know is hydrated and that I'm continuing on fluids. So it's some, it's an in-hospital treatment, not something that you would send home with the patient. Again, I personally haven't noticed a big difference in calcium level reductions in animals that I put on furosemide versus ones I don't. But if it's something that you wanted to do, I would use like a relatively low dose, like one to two mg per kg of furosemide Q, eight to 12 hours in a patient that's on a pretty good couple of fluids. And then the other option that you can use in both an acute phase, once you've hydrated the patient and in a chronic phase is bisphosphonates. So these are going to be things like pomidronate, uh, zoledronate, and then there's oral bisphosphonates as well. Alendronate is one. This is another drug that I remember how it works because I understood the mechanism and I thought it was really cool. So I'll share that with you now too, if that's okay. <laughs> Absolutely. So, bisphosphonates are actually toxic to osteoclasts and they bind to bone. So they bind to the hydroxyapatite bone matrix. So when you give a bisphosphonate, it actually localizes to the bone, it gets taken up into the bone and sort of adhered to the bone. And then when these osteoclasts come to try to chew on the bone to release this calcium into the bloodstream, the bisphosphonates, they ingest the bisphosphonates and they're toxic and they die. So it actually kills the osteoclast to prevent this calcium release from the bone into the bloodstream. And it has a pretty strong and pretty quick effect. There are publications looking at bisphosphonates for reduction of calcium due to any means. So um, hypercalcemia of malignancy, vitamin D toxicosis, they work pretty quickly. Both pomidronate and zoledronate are given IV. Pomidronate has a little bit higher potential to cause nephrotoxicity, at least in people. So we tend to give it in fluids over about two hours. And zoledronate can be given over about 10, 15 minutes um, also in fluids. What we typically expect to see is that in about 24 hours, we'll start to see those calcium levels going down. And even if it's secondary to cancer, it tends to last for, I would say somewhere between four to eight weeks. Most of the time, if I have a patient where I'm checking calcium weekly, I tend to see that between like the four week and the six week mark, we start to see the calcium go back up again. I mean, it's pretty impressive and it can bring it down sometimes into a normal range. It can actually sometimes go a little bit low, but those are amazing drugs for sort of, it's not something that you would use instead of treating the primary tumor. But again, sometimes you have a primary tumor that you can't treat or you can't remove all of, um, and it's a really nice adjunct therapy to use. 
over the chronic phase. So if you've got a patient that's not sick, um, but the calcium is high enough to where it's potentially causing problems like PUPD or bladder stones or, you know, weakness, lethargy, et cetera, but they're, you know, relatively euhydrated, then you can use bisphosphonates just spaced periodically as the calcium goes up and other dose of bisphosphonates are due. These drugs are cumulative, so you might see that over time you can space them out a little bit further. The other thing you can use is steroids. Mm -hmm. So steroids has the potential to work in two different ways. Obviously, if you're treating something like lymphoma, um, then steroids might be a way to reduce the calcium just because it's going to be directly toxic to those cancerous lymphocytes and kill off those cancer cells, and then you'll get a reduction in your PTH or P secretion and reduce calcium that way. But for most other tumors, that steroids do not have a direct toxic impact on the cancer cells. They We see reduction in calcium just through promotion of calcium excretion by the steroids. You're busy. Your CE needs to be easy. Easy to earn and easy to track. Clinicians Brief CE is highly relevant and now more convenient than ever. Study online, from home, or on the go, and always at your own pace. Courses are race approved and designed with your busy schedule in mind. Start your next course today at cliniciansbrief.com slash CE. So moving on from hypercalcemia malignancy, the next perineoplastic syndrome you discuss is hypoglycemia. And I didn't realize this type of response could be seen with tumors other than insulinomas. I was very familiar with it for insulinomas, um, but didn't realize that there were other cancers that could cause this. So could you give some examples of those? Yeah, sure. The ones that I would say are like among the uncommon tumors are the more common um, would be hepatocellular carcinoma or hepatocellular adenoma. I've seen it before with hepatocellular carcinoma. Um, and then lyomyoma or lyomyosarcoma, oftentimes of the intestinal tract. So those are two that are common among the uncommon causes. The other ones that have been reported are hemangiosarcoma, lymphoma, like a chronic lymphocytic leukemia, melanoma, mammary carcinoma, plasma cell tumor, and then renal and salivary carcinomas. And there's those lymphomas and carcinomas again. (laughs) And I'm sure that you're going to have a really wonderful detailed explanation of the mechanism. Why do we, why are glucocorticoids recommended for the perineoplastic hypoglycemia? So this one's actually short and sweet. (laughs) Um, It's just because it causes insulin resistance. That makes total sense. So I know for some, sometimes when we're treating neoplasia, I worry about starting glucocorticoids prior to starting treatment for the primary tumor. In this case, is it okay to do, usually with lymphoma is where I have heard that, you know, we want to be careful because it can make the lymphoma resistant to some of the chemo protocols. Is it okay to start glucocorticoids as palliative treatment? Yes. For perineoplastic hypoglycemia, you know, a lot of times you don't really have the luxury of waiting because you have a patient that's, you know, immediately symptomatic. I think if your patient is not symptomatic and it's caught just sort of by chance, you know, you're doing 
pre-anesthetic blood work and you know that the dog has a BG of 65 and it's walking around, you know, looking completely normal, in that instance, you might be able to wait and figure out what your ultimate plan is going to be before starting steroids because the dog's not symptomatic. And a symptomatic patient that's having collapse episodes or seizures, you know, a lot of times you don't really want to wait on starting a steroid. But I would say if at all possible, um, doing the test to diagnose this over secretion of insulin is your insulin to glucose ratio. Mm -hmm. If at all possible to get that before starting steroids, that's really helpful because that's something that we we really need to see in order to know what's going on. We need to document that the insulin level is inappropriately high while the glucose is inappropriately low um, and steroids can mess with that. So, you know, it's just a blood sample. Um, you have to send it in when the blood glucose is low. If the blood glucose is higher than, I think it's 65, um, that test is not going to be accurate. So this is one where, you know, like you can check us that glucose. And if it's 40, great. Now's the time to draw your sample, send that test in. And then yes, at that point, start the dog on steroids. Absolutely. Yep. That's really great advice. I've, I've actually had that happen to me before where I've drawn the blood and it turned out that the blood sugar was, you know, higher than what they needed in order to diagnose it. So getting that Getting that spot glucose check at the same time is a really great idea that escaped me. <laughs> I've been burned by that one too. So. <laughs> so let's talk about hypertrophic osteopathy. What are the primary characteristics of hypertrophic osteopathy? I, you know, I think this is a really cool perineoplastic syndrome. I know that sounds kind of messed up because I wouldn't wish this on any patient, but it's just a very interesting thing to see. And once you've seen it, it's one of those things that sticks in your mind. At least it did for me. So the defining characteristic is that you have this periosteal reaction or proliferation along the distal limbs, and it usually starts distally and progresses proximally. It can be really, really subtle on radiographs. Sometimes the clinical syndrome aspect of it, like what you actually appreciate on your physical exam, is more obvious than the radiographic change, at least initially. And it's usually symmetric. So oftentimes it affects all four limbs, but there are reports of it being just in the thoracic limbs or in the pelvic limbs. Mm -hmm. That's again, these are the defining characteristics, which is a radiographic change. But like what you actually see with your eyes when you're assessing the patient so these dogs tend to look quite sick. They This condition, it's related to stimulation of the vagus nerve, but it seems like it's very inflammatory based on what it causes clinically. So one of the things to kind of look for is looking at the limbs. A lot of times they're a little bit edematous. So you'll notice that like they might have pitting edema or they just seem kind of thick compared to what you would expect. Oftentimes, they're really warm to the touch. They're reported to be painful. I, I can say that in a lot of the patients that I've seen this in, they're not necessarily painful when you palpate the limbs, but they just seem systemically ill. They can be febrile. A lot of times, they'll have scleral injection, ocular discharge, nasal discharge, um, and then they might be lame. So some of them I've seen kind of walk similarly to a patient that has immune-mediated polyarthropathy, where they're kind of like walking on eggshells. So those are the symptoms that you actually appreciate clinically. And for me, one of the things that's always very striking is these dogs look super, super sick. Mm -hmm. um, usually they're not like BAR, wagging their tails, you know, giving you kisses. They're just kind of walking around really slowly, plopping down on the floor. They look very tragic. 
Um, and then when you notice these symptoms of scleral injection, you know, nasal discharge, ocular discharge, swelling of the limbs, that should push you to take radiographs. And most of the time you need to take it of more than one location. And then I would start distally. So I include the, like the digits, if I'm kind of screening for a patient, then I would include the entire paw and then up to, you know, maybe mid radius and ulna. Same thing, like you want to get a portion of the tibia and fibula just to screen for this. It can be really obvious or it can be very, very faint and very subtle, this sort of fuzziness along the periosteum. And which types of neoplasia are associated with this syndrome? I have seen it the most, um, and it's actually reported to be most common in patients with metastatic sarcoma, particularly osteosarcoma. I've seen it with other types of sarcomas as well that have metastasized. It's also reported with primary lung tumors, primary tumors of the esophagus and urinary tract tumors that have either metastasized or like rarely can be within the urinary tract and not in the chest itself, which is super weird, uncommon. Can hypertrophic osteopathy be caused by non-neoplastic conditions? Yeah, pretty much anything going on in the chest can cause this. Um, It's been reported with granulomas, particularly spiroserca, bacterial endocarditis, heartworm infection, esophageal foreign body, megaesophagus, or I think there's been a case report of a dog with a PDA with right-to-left shunting that's developed. Wow. Yeah, quite a list. Now, my understanding, you know, you had mentioned, you know, anything in the chest and certainly thoracic neoplasia, but is feline lung digit syndrome different from hypertrophic osteopathy? Because that's one I've seen before. Yes. Yeah, that's also a weird one. Hypertrophic osteopathy is not metastatic disease. It is this tumor inciting this strange vagus nerve slash inflammatory reaction that gets the whole body excited about it. But it is not actually metastasis of the tumor to all of the lung bones causing the periosteal reaction. It's independent of that. Lung digit syndrome is metastasis. So for some reason, these feline pulmonary carcinomas, they just have a predilection for the to metastasize to the bones of the digits. So it's directly spread of the cancer to that location that can cause similar symptoms in the lameness, pain, et cetera. And then when we talk about treatment, beyond palliative treatment for pain and inflammation, are there any other therapies for the hypertrophic osteopathy? The best treatment is removing the inciting cause if that's possible. So if you have a primary lung tumor, then doing a lung lobectomy. If you have metastatic disease, then there are some patients that could be candidates for metastasectomy, going in and removing some of those nodules. And if you can remove the underlying cause, then it resolves. If you can't, there's not really another great treatment. Typically, you know, we're going to palliate with pain relievers, I've had some patients that do better on NSAIDs. I've had some patients that do better on steroids. So I usually, in a dog that's not eating, I'm going to try a steroid first and see if that helps. If I have a patient that's still eating, then we might try an NSAID. And if we're not getting a great response after a few days, doing a brief washout and then switching over is typically what I do. And then other sort of adjunct pain medications like gabapentin, et cetera. There are older reports of doing a vagotomy. So I, I, when in doing my homework, I tried to find that information and it's, it, it's, 
pretty old, so I couldn't access mm-hmm. any of those papers, but that has been reported doing unilateral vagotomy. I don't know how you pick which side, but anyway, um, doing a unilateral vagotomy can potentially alleviate or resolve the symptoms. That is really I'm interesting. And yeah, one I'm going to leave to someone else as well. <laughs> okay, let's talk about myasthenia gravis. So myasthenia gravis can be a primary immune mediated disorder. That's definitely where I've seen it before. Or it can be secondary to some neoplasms. So which, which types of cancer can cause perineoplastic myasthenia gravis? Thymoma is the one that comes to mind most frequently. I'd also, again, add lymphoma to the list. I've seen it in dogs that have um, mediastinal masses or thymic masses associated with lymphoma um, that get perineoplastic myasthenia. It's also been reported with some types of cutaneous lymphoma, as well as osteosarcoma, biliary carcinoma, and oral sarcoma. That one was weird. I learned that in doing my homework. That one that one was weird. <laughs> <laughs> So one of the things, you know, I know about myasthenia gravis is that it has just this large range of severity, you know, from focal esophageal dysfunction all the way to, unfortunately, fulminating myasthenia gravis and death, which I have seen one time before, and it was awful. So do you know, is there any correlation between the severity of the myasthenia gravis and whether or not it's perineoplastic in origin or it's the more, you know, primary immune-mediated? Not to my knowledge, I've not heard that before. And the cases that I have seen, they tend to be more like esophageal. So a lot of dogs will have regurgitation and that's their primary symptom, not necessarily the same like exercise-induced weakness that you would see with generalized. But there are reports of fulminant myasthenia gravis occurring with thymoma. So I, I don't know if anybody's actually looked at that. It would be really interesting, but I... I have seen or heard reports of sort of all these different forms happening secondary to different cancers. Okay. And in the article, one of the things that struck me was you stated the serum autoantibodies are inconsistently observed in patients with perineoplastic myasthenia gravis, which, you know, that's generally how I think of diagnosing this. So could you elaborate a little bit on that? Yes, absolutely. I don't necessarily think that this is any different from non-perineoplastic myasthenia gravis, I know that the like the autoantibodies are going to detect, if you've got a patient with generalized myasthenia, they're going to detect it about 98% of the time. So it's probably in a similar range than what we would say with, you know, like non-perineoplastic myasthenia. If you catch it really early, um, then there's a chance that it could be negative. And so in those cases, they recommend if you've got a patient that is very symptomatic and the clinical picture really fits with myasthenia, they just recommend retesting at some point later. But if you do end up having a patient where you get this negative test and you retest and it's negative or you you can't wait to retest and you want to figure out some other mechanism to go about diagnosing this, then you can try the edrophonium response test. I would recommend touching base with a neurologist before you do this because it can go wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so edrophonium is a really short-acting anticholinesterase, and they recommend that you have atropine on hand um, as well as like supplies to intubate in case the patient has a cholinergic crisis. Um, the other way that you can diagnose this, and again, this is like a broad view, it's definitely not a me, it's probably a neurologist view, is with um, like electromyelography 
So I don't have that in my back pocket, but at that point, you probably would want to touch base with the neurologist to kind of troubleshoot what's going on. Sure. And then our traditional treatments for myasthenia gravis, like protostigmine, elevated feeding, are, are those oftentimes utilized with the perineoplastic syndrome as well? Um, it does depend on the case there. So if you've got a patient that's relatively symptomatic, so let's say that they have a thymoma and the owners were willing to do surgery to remove it. So there's this anticipation that there, that the inciting cause is going to be resolved. However, this patient's going to be more likely to get aspiration pneumonia and have complications associated with anesthesia. So um, there are times when we'll start treatment prior to anesthesia just to get the patient in a better position to undergo anesthesia. Um, but unfortunately, after like different from HO, removing the underlying tumor will not necessarily resolve the myasthenia. And sometimes it does. Um, and sometimes the symptoms get better once the underlying treatment um, or the underlying tumor has been addressed, but they don't always go away. And so some of those patients may need lifelong management with, um, like you mentioned, elevated feedings or peritostigmine. Get that Bailey chair out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. So the last perineoplastic syndrome on our list today is hyperestrogenism or feminization syndrome, it's called. And what clinical signs should we be suspicious of with perineoplastic hyperestrogenism? So these patients, to me, they look like dogs that have an endocrine disorder. Um, you know, we all kind of know that look. You know, it's just like, eh, there's something endocrine happening here. <laughs> But the sort of defining characteristic is this bilaterally symmetric truncal alopecia. Mm -hmm. So the head is spared, the limbs are spared, but the trunk is naked on both sides, or at least pretty bald. They can also get cutaneous hyperpigmentation, epidermal thinning. They can get gynecomastia. They can lactate, which is really interesting if you have a male dog lactating. You can see attraction from other males, propitial atrophy, atrophy of one testicle um, and not the other. And then um, when I was doing my homework, I learned another thing. So I'll tell you. <laughs> it's the thing that dermatologists get excited about. It's called mm -hmm. linear prepucial dermatosis, mm. which looks like a narrow strip of erythema hyperpigmentation and scaling along the ventral midline from the prepuce towards the scrotum. So mm -hmm. like on the midline in between prepuce and scrotum, there's erythema hyperpigmentation and then this like scaling look. And that is very characteristic for hyperestrogenism in male dogs. So huh. I thought that was cool. That is cool. We'll put that down on the list for pattern recognition. Exactly. And then in female dogs, it can be a little bit harder to detect. It's not as common in female dogs. The most common cause of this is going to be a Sertoli cell tumor, which arises mm -hmm. from the testicle. But um, you can have it arise from the ovarian tissue as well. And then, sorry, not a Sertoli cell tumor. It's a granu, I can never Granulosa. Granulosa thical cell tumor, yeah. Yeah. So um, in female dogs, it's less common. And it mostly just looks like a dog that's in heat for a long time. Mm -hmm. So they can have very prominent vulva and mammary tissue. And they can have abnormalities within the heat cycle. So they can have a persistent heat cycle or irregular heat cycles. And then what is the treatment of choice then for those tumors? I'm going to assume it's surgical excision if yes. possible. Yep. Yeah. It's Sertoli cell tumor, like I said, is by far the most common. And 
in dogs that have Sertoli cell tumors, we see that about 25 to 50% are actually going to show signs of hyperestrogenism. So this isn't something like this, is probably something that most general practitioners will see at some point during their career. It is more common in cryptorchid testicles than in descended testicles. So about half of the time that we see Sertoli cell tumors, they're in cryptorchid testicles. And like this points to the fact that there's an overrepresentation because not half of dogs that are intact are cryptorchid. So it's definitely more common in dogs that have a cryptorchid testicle, which can sometimes make detection a little bit hard because you may not always know that there's a testicle hiding inside of there. So it can be kind of a puzzle. We know that in these patients, the testosterone to estrogen ratio is probably the most important thing in determining whether or not clinical signs are going to be present. And there's not really a great, at least nothing that I could find, like where you would give extra testosterone to try to counteract the estrogen, you know, high levels to make that ratio a little bit more towards normal. I Neutering is going to fix the problem and almost all cases. So that's what we would recommend doing. There, like after neuter, it takes typically about one to three months before all of these symptoms are going to resolve. The exception being, so if you have a patient that has estrogen toxicity to the bone marrow, and so you get this pancytopenia, not all of those cases will get better. If it happens, like if those symptoms do resolve, they can take a little bit longer to do so, but you might be in really, you know, if you've got a dog that has no neutrophils, even removing that cryptorchid testicle or removing the testicle, the dog may die from neutropenia and do sepsis before you see those symptoms improve. And there's also a chance that the toxicity will be too severe so that it could be essentially permanent for the bone marrow, which would be a bummer. That would be a bummer. Well, this has been just a wonderful, thorough conversation. I loved all of your explanations about all the mechanisms of actions, because just like you, that really helps me understand the why behind what I'm doing. And that helps me remember things. So I'm really glad that you were able to go through all of this with us. I do have one little thing before we finish up today. Actually, at the end of all of our podcasts, we like to play a little game. And it's just a series of kind of would you rather questions. There's no right or wrong answers. It's just for fun. Would you like to play? Yeah, let's go. Okay. All right. So first question, would you rather work at a new university every year or never be able to leave your current position? Oh man, that's probably, I think I probably would do the new one every year. Yeah. I like, I like to be faced with new things and exciting changes too. <laughs> Would you rather be stuck in the clinic with a hyperthyroid cat or a dysphoric husky? A hyperthyroid cat. <laughs> okay. Would you rather be able to calculate weight to body surface area in your head without a calculator or remember every dose of every medication without ever having to look it up? Uh, the every dose, every medication without ever having to look it up. <laughs> Definitely that one. <laughs> would you rather treat your own pets if they were seriously ill, or would you rather have a trusted colleague do it? Um, I have a, what do you call it? Like I have a, um, I've elected somebody to make decisions for me when I become unable to do so. So I, I mix it up and do both. I treat them until it gets to the point where I, I can tell my decision is not going to be, um, it's more grounded emotion instead of medical mm -hmm. 
soundness and I have an elected representative to take over at that point. That's a really good plan. I should think about doing that too. <laughs> so last question and um, the best one for last, obviously. Uh, if dogs and cats wore bikinis, would the top just cover the most cranial mammary glands or would they have one on, on each set? Hmm. I think it would be like one of those hybrid bathing suits like is popular right now. It's like technically a one piece, but the sides are open and the back is open. So oh. that in my mind is the dog cat bikini already. I, I think you're right. I think that's already been taken care of for us. <laughs> all right. That was it. That was all my questions. You did great. Thanks. It was fun. Thanks again to today's guest for joining us. And thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review us. You can also listen to our podcast on our website at cliniciansbrief.com slash podcasts. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at cliniciansbrief and on Instagram at clinicians.brief or drop us a line at podcast at briefmedia.com. Clinicians Brief the Podcast is a brief media production produced by Alexis Ussery, sound by Randall Stupka, and hosted by me, Dr. Alyssa Watson.